This is Marketing Trends, your number one source for exclusive interviews with chief marketing officers and executive marketing leaders in the Fortune 1000 and beyond. This is Jeremy Bergeron, and I interview, collaborate, and partner with world-class CMOs and marketing leaders across industries. Brightspot Content Management System enables marketers to launch in just 100 days. It efficiently manages marketing campaigns on mobile apps or updates investors on your corporate site, handling it all seamlessly. With over 100 plus different content types and templates, marketers can deliver a customized, relevant experience to your audience. Additionally, integrate your current marketing automations platform and SEO recommendations directly from your Brightspot content management system, simplifying tool management. Discover more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends. Hey everybody, welcome back to Marketing Trends. So excited yet again to have an epic, epic, brilliant, visionary marketing leader in the virtual studio today. I'm here with Dan Slagan, Chief Marketing Officer for Tomorrow.io. Now I'm gonna let Dan talk about the things he's doing, but I just wanna mention the, the badassery that is this man. Dan is a, from what I know, a four-time startup executive specializing in scaling global go-to-market functions from early stage to 100 million plus in ARR. Some people talk about growth. Some people actually know about growth. Some people are growth. Dan is all the above. He has experience in B2C, B2B. I mean, he's worked at some epic brands already. HubSpot, Wayfair, you may have heard of him. He's built teams. He understands growth. And he's also founded and sold a video tech startup of his own. So he understands that whole process. Uh, he's an advisor. He's a contributor. He's also a dad and just an all around cool human being. So Dan, I'm going to shut up. We're glad you're here. Thanks for being on Marketing Trends. Thank you so much. It's an amazing introduction. I should listen to that every morning right when I yes. wake up. When I wake we'll, up. <laughs> we'll get you going, man. Um, so for those who don't know about Tomorrow.io, tell us about Tomorrow.io. Tell us about your role and what you're working on these days. I am the chief marketing officer at Tomorrow.io. I'm in my fourth year at the company. And what the company is, is the world's leading weather intelligence company. What we do is we work primarily with businesses and governments, and we tell them how weather is going to impact them before it actually does so that they can update their operational plans to be safer, to improve efficiency, all those types of things. Awesome. I also want to give a mention to your book. You had a book come out a while back, right? Understanding Startup CEOs? Understanding Startup CEOs, yes. I wrote that after uh, a, a number of stints reporting to startup CEOs, talking to a whole bunch and just hearing general feedback from from the market that people were really struggling to understand this concept. That's fantastic. I haven't, I haven't run across a CMO that writes a book about understanding startup CEOs. I haven't run across that. I think that's very timely, will always be relevant, especially I think in modern day, kind of being a marketer and a marketing leader in a modern day world, that relationship with the CEO is so critical, especially in a startup world. So I, I don't I haven't read your book, but I, I put a pin in it to go back and check it out. Um, what was the kind of motivation for that? Was just your own personal experience kind of seeing the ebbs and flows of working with different CEOs? Was it was it just something you heard about? Like what really instigated that that book? 
I'd say so. I've been in startups my whole career, um, dating dating back uh, quite quite a while. And I'd say it's whether it's reporting to, interacting with, advising. I mean, it's hundreds of startups at Yoz at this point. You always just started to notice the same things. And I had these. I had all these thoughts sitting in my head, and it didn't really come out until I had a friend who took their first CMO role reporting to a CEO, and they just kept sending me emails of. Hey, I'm going into my weekly check-in. I don't know if I'm getting fired this week. I don't know what to talk about. I'm so nervous. I don't know. And at one point, this individual just asked me for advice. And I was actually out in San Francisco and I wrote a bunch of real tips, sent it to him. And he responded instantly just saying, this has to be a book, please. Oh my gosh, this is so helpful. So I literally spent the next six hours. We flew from San Francisco back to Boston. I just sat in the seat writing, writing, writing. The person next to me probably thought I was a crazy person. By the time I landed, I'm not even kidding you. I probably had written 70% of the book. Um, and then in my stupid head, I thought, well, I've already done 70. How hard could the last 30% be? A year later, I realized how hard it was, but that's the story of how the book uh, got started. Wow. Well, it's something that we it's something that we we bring up on occasion here when we have some epic CMOs and to talk about the relationship between the CEO and then just the executive leadership team and how to build trust and how to build rapport. It's such a beautiful and very important thing. I think again in the modern day kind of modern day world. It's one thing that doesn't get talked about a lot. I, I spent right. I spent about five five hours last week in a car ride with uh, one of our co-founders here, and it randomly came up, and I just sort of not reminded, but just said it's really hard to report to a founder, and it's really hard to report to a co-founder, and it's hard to say that out loud, especially to a founder, because you know they have. 10x more things to think about. And so they're looking at you a level down saying, oh my gosh, I wish I had your job. This looks so easy. But when you're only the CMO and you're looking up, it's really difficult. And if you don't have a regimen, like if you go to the gym or you try to adhere to a strict diet or something, you just get lazy, you forget stuff. And by nature of the relationship, because it changes so much, it's so dynamic, oh, you just have so many more challenges. Yeah, I agree. I think that it. I think that it is a topic that is so is so poignant and relevant. Um, I would love to just understand. I mean, take us back into that conversation. I mean, look, you're you're someone who has a lot of experience reporting to CEOs, being a part of fast growth startup. I mean, you said you've been in the game a long time, and you're still kind of in that conversation. I mean, it's, hard, it's tough to report to founders and co-founders. What what was the kind of net net of that conversation? What have you extracted now, knowing all that you know, having a book about it? How did you approach that? One of the things I like to think about is what type of CEO or founder are you reporting to as the marketer? And the first question is, was that individual a former marketing themselves? Where they work, were they a CMO or were they a VP or something? If they were, it doesn't make the relationship any harder or easier. It just makes it different. And the first question is, do they want to really be the CMO? Are you more the conduit for them to get the message out of whatever's in their head or where they're observing and take it out? And We've seen very large companies operate this way, and it's fine. That's the way you can operate a company. The other way is they've done marketing in their career, and they're done. I, I don't understand the nuances of it. I want to talk strategy, but for the most part, you take it and run with it. So that's one. You have to understand maybe your CEO actually knows a lot about marketing, and you can manage that relationship accordingly. The other side is that your CEO is not a former marketer at all, and then they go into two different buckets. Either they think they know about marketing, or they don't think they know about marketing they don't think they know about marketing, then the onus is completely on you to keep them informed of how you think about 
branding, product marketing, demand gen. What are the nuances and the trends you should care about, not care about? What your 12-month roadmap looks like? Bringing them to marketing conferences. Like you need to bring them along for, for the ride with you. And if they don't understand something, that's your fault as a CMO because they admitted to you they don't know anything and they've never worked in marketing. That's fine. If they're the CEO and they think they know a lot about marketing, but they've never worked in it, it's not a red flag, but it's a yellow flag. And you need to approach that conversation very delicately because there's some areas where you're going to disagree and say, look, you're wrong about this. Here's why you're wrong. And there's other battles that are not worth fighting or you just know, all right, that's fine. You actually were right about that. I was wrong as a CMO uh, that way. I'm not always going to be right. And so ultimately your job at the end of the day as a CMO is to get the right campaigns, the right message, and the right projects live. You don't always have to be the one that comes up with the ideas, but you have to be the one that gets the best idea and takes that one live. So yeah, it just depends what type of a background and experience your CEO has and, and how they see or have experienced marketing. Do you have like a, a framework for your cadence of communication with the CEO and or the things that you you know, you do share, like, are you texting, Hey, a win? Are you, you know, are you powwowing about random things? Like, do you have a typical flow framework for how you want to interact with maybe just use the ones you're working with now or the, the co-founders, CEOs, like, cause it could vary, I guess, based on their experience. But do you have an approach that you kind of use to, yeah, stay in sync, stay connected, stay, keep trust and rapport there, but also like be empowered to just crush it and do the things you do really well? It's a good question. It, it definitely differs if you're reporting into a CEO who's the sole founder of a company or if you have co-founders and maybe a management team as well that, that you're updating frequently. For me, at least at my, in my current role, I try not to have too many conversations with my CEO that the rest of the management team doesn't know about. So my updates there are what does the team need to know about from an annual, quarterly, monthly, weekly, daily stand-up type of basis? Where it gets more unique with my CEO now is, you know, on a monthly basis, just trying to do some type of a creativity check-in. You know, okay. how do you feel about the state of, you know, the brand, where we're going, what's top of mind for you? How are you thinking about the market six months out? Um, so at least I can understand and always keep tabs on what's in, in their head. Mm, okay, got it. Now, now shifting a little bit here, because you have a lot of experience, Dan, I mean, a lot of experience, period, but specifically leading teams through high growth periods. I mean, it's happening now with your current company. You did it at Alignable from 100,000 members to over 2 million members, I saw. But just, I kind of want to hear about your experience building and leading teams through high growth and your perspective there. Maybe talk about Alignable and what you went through there or current, you know, more updated things are cool. But just give us kind of how you're thinking through, yeah, building and leading teams through real periods of high growth. It's, it's interesting. I've found high growth periods, at least on the marketing side, that we've always had a strong brand and product market fit. And we've been able to articulate our story well. And we've spent a lot of time digging in with users or customers or use cases, really defining the message so that we know, we know those stories like on, on the back of our hands. But then in terms of the channel and the way you get it out there, I've actually found through each of my roles that we have a diverse marketing tactic uh, in terms of the number of things we do, but really only one or two of them really pays off. And the second I find out, I just go focus there and I ignore everything else almost unapologetically um, comparatively to where I invest. So a couple of examples for me would be like when I was at HubSpot, 
remember there, I, I initially came in to lead their advertising. This was years and years ago. And so I had a certain budget and the way it worked was you kind of come in, you build something. And once it's in a good place, you hire someone to run it and then you go do something else. So we did that advertising, fine, in a good place. And then kind of sat down with the CMO and said, well, what do you want to do next? And I said, I would love to see this brand out there in the market with the other big companies like the Salesforces of the world, the Twitters, the LinkedIn's. Then this is, you know, 10 years ago. Well, how can we do that? Uh, co-marketing, partnerships, co-webinars, co-ebooks at the time, which back then was something that was that was very helpful. Uh, <laughs> and ultimately, you know, it ended it end with some type of a lead share. Uh, you know, you blast your base, I blast my base, and we'll share the leads. That team alone, by the time I was done with it, we were doing 40,000 leads per month. Wow. Which the company had never seen before. And that was a pretty big, pretty big, big inflow. Um, you know, for me, the second we saw that that worked with one partner, I forget who the first one was, let's say it's LinkedIn. It was not, all right, how do we slowly develop that? No, instantly take that to Facebook, to Google, to all, we did 50 partnerships in the next 12 months, just blasting Legion. Alignable is very similar. So Alignable is basically like LinkedIn for local business owners where you could come and meet all the other business owners within a couple mile radius to drive word of mouth and ask questions and that, and that kind of thing. And we found that, first of all, we did all the marketing tactics you would do, SEO, a little bit of paid, social, that kind of thing. But we really found that, well, when someone joins the platform, they can very quickly find other business owners that they know and invite them. So you're specifically focused on a viral coefficient. How do you get that as close to one as possible? And how do you make that as seamless and frictionless as, as, as it can be? Very similar to how LinkedIn grew back in the day when they said, hey, instead of having a random Rolodex of people sit on your desk, bring your Rolodex to LinkedIn. And that's really what, you know, I think if I recall, you know, recruiters and sales folks were the first people to really grow the LinkedIn platform. I think I heard that because they had all they had all the contacts. So we did mm-hmm. the same thing. But Figuring out that process was ex- exceptionally hard and just like it's email marketing on crack and wow. every single nuance of that from send to delivery to open to landing page to sign up. If you could just get that right, it was completely game changing. And so we would focus uh, a significant portion of our efforts and team on just doing that, maintaining it and trying to 10x it versus saying, Ah, well, maybe we could do this other thing or maybe we could do more, you know, events or SEO or branding or whatever it might be. Um, we knew we had a window, smaller team, smaller resources, especially when competing against someone like LinkedIn. And so we just we just focused on that ex- exclusively. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about the was it just cold email outreach to these partners for Legion? It was just cold emails. Can you talk about that strategy a little bit and why that works so well? Well, at, at HubSpot, it was one of those. It was the FOMO. The second okay. you get one of them in, the second you get uh, LinkedIn to do something with you, Twitter is going to want to do it. And the second you get Twitter, uh, Meta is going to want to do something with you. And the second you get them, Salesforce, you know, and so it's just, it's a domino effect. Mm. Um, at Alignable, it was all based on, it was all based on trust. It was all based on you're being invited to a platform by a business owner that you know. And if they're willing to put their name on the line for the platform that's driving value for them, they were, they were interested to at least come explore and the conversion rates and the willingness to open and click and actually join the platform was significantly higher than anything else we'd seen. Mm. So you talked about 30,000 leads per, I mean, incredible demand. I mean, partner events, all kinds of stuff in terms of just your approach to Legion and how it's evolved over the years. Like, has it, has it changed a ton since those HubSpot days or are you still drawing from that experience and, and doing things, anything new around that now? 
I love, I mean, I love partnerships. Um, obviously there's things like SEO and those types of things. I think where I've been very fortunate is actually on the PR side of the house as well. Ah. So mixing some of the branding with demand gen. So it's not uncommon, um, you know, to, to do some type of category creation, but it's pretty uncommon for a category to actually take off and be new and be established. And so what I've done at, at, at recent jobs, um, you know, I was CMO at an ad tech company. And one of the things that we did there was we created, we created our own category, but more importantly, what we had was a huge amount of Facebook data running through our ads platform. Basically, and again, this is, you know, 10 years ago, again, or five years ago, think about having so much of the Facebook ad spend running through your platform that you could basically predict an earnings call because you knew based on vertical, based on continent, based on mobile or desktop, whatever it might be, if people were increasing or not, and if spend was going up or down. So I actually ended up at that company going to all the big banks in New York. I went to Goldman, I went to JP Morgan, and I said, I can tell you what's going to happen on the next earnings call. And they called BS on me, and then we were I was spot on, the first one. After that, they came back and they said, all right, you have to inform us. You have to inform our clients, everyone. How can we get you to come speak at our conferences? All that kind of thing. And I said, I'm willing to do all of it, but every single time your person gets called on to CNBC or Bloomberg, you have to bring me on and you have to say that I'm the reason that you have this data and we are hands down the leading data provider of Facebook ads and everything. And wow. so we did that. And it started with, uh, we went on uh, we went on Bloomberg show with Tom Keene. Then we went on CNBC. Then we were in Siena and we were everywhere. And we were competing against the likes of Salesforce and companies of that size. Mm-hmm. And we just, took, we just took the market and share a voice that way. Wow. Here at tomorrow, slightly similar example. So four years ago when I joined the company, the question was, all right, very crowded space, huge mm-hmm. companies that have been in the weather industry for tens of years. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we do? We're like, are we just a weather company? And the answer was absolutely not. We are not a weather company. We are a weather intelligence company. So we created the concept of weather intelligence mm. and we've been able to take that to market. And it took us a good two years to actually build that momentum. And finally, you know, year and a half or so ago, uh, the big analyst firms, you know, the Gartners, the Forrest of the world started releasing their big reports and surprise, it was on weather intelligence and we were the leader in it. So mm. it's really good to see that type of stuff come, come to fruition. And as you're building up that type of new category, it makes just the PR story a lot easier um, because you're not just a weather company. You're, you're disrupting the whole, the whole industry on, on its head. Are you also leading the comm strategy as well? Like in all comms, like I've, I've been seeing that more kind of blended CMO, also head of comms roles more and more now. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting there because not only does PR and comms live in marketing, but the actual execution of PR lives in marketing too. So uh, it's on marketing to source the opportunities, which we've been extremely fortunate here. We've been uh, New York Times, CNN, Wall Street Journal, CNBC, NPR, we've been everywhere. Uh, but then it's also on marketing to actually show up to the interviews a lot more than, than used to. So it okay. used to be you get a tier one publication, you just instantly get your CEO on there as soon as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. It's changed a little bit. Yeah. Startup world, tech world is nuts. CEOs are very busy. There's a lot going on. Marketing not only has to be able to source interviews, they need to be able to speak to it in an intelligent way and be able to speak to it based on what's happening in the industry, market conditions, the product impact, the industry impact, that you really need to know your company inside and out. You have experience clearly in performance marketing, demand gen, brand building. 
how do you balance these different areas of marketing to create like a cohesive strategy for tomorrow? Such a good question. Uh, to some degree, it's a little bit of just making sure you are focused on your KPIs and your OKRs and checking in on those on a weekly basis. Not so much to say, am I getting closer to my goal every week? Because some things don't change on a weekly basis. You need to give it a month or sometimes a quarter. But more importantly, to look at how you're spending your time and is it being allocated effectively based on those those OKRs? Because I know, you know, I've been guilty of this in the past. I'm sure everyone has. You you focus on the things that are easy and that are like working at a high level visibility, but you really know that they're not helping you hit your OKR number. It's an example being, you know, that PR strategy I just mentioned. Obviously, I love PR and I think it's a great way to go tell your story, but it's not great for consistent, predictable lead generation. Right. right. So it's great. You were in the New York Times last week. Wow, look at me, look at the company, but your sales team isn't getting consistent leads. And there's a huge disconnect on, well, what's the role of marketing here? Are we here to show off or are we here to help the sales team sell? Mm. What, what is working for a consistent, predictable lead gen right now? Uh, how do I phrase this? Throwing the kitchen sink at the wall on a consistent <laughs> basis every single week. Okay. I mean, I, like, I would be, I'd be lying to you if I told you, hey, we absolutely get this number of leads from our paid campaigns every single uh-huh. week. We're absolutely killing it. I mean, there's some things that are predictable. I know my SEO. I know how many organic, you know, we have a free API sign up. I know, ex- I know exactly how many API signups I'm going to get next week within okay. you know, a certain percentage. I, n- I know roughly what percentage will convert to, you know, paid opportunities for the SMB team, for the enterprise team. For, like, I know that. But then there's a whole bunch of stuff where we're going to go to an event next month. How many leads are we going to get? We have a goal. How close will we get to the goal? Mm-hmm. We'll see. As we start to develop... You know, even in my fourth year here, as we go to these events for the second, third, fourth, fifth year in a row, it gets easier to predict. But what I'm finding right now is that I need to have all of my channels ready to be deployed at any one time, mm. but I'm constantly adjusting the levers on which channel I'm using more or less based on a campaign, an industry. You know, one of the things that is a blessing and a curse at Tomorrow is we work across almost every industry mm-hmm. and multiple job functions across operations and safety. So there's not like we have one persona or one user. We have a vast number. Okay. Okay. Can you, can you discuss like a particular marketing campaign or project that you're particularly proud of and like what made it successful? Yeah, there's a good one. So we work in the trucking. Trucking is one industry that we work in a lot. So trucking, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of, there's a ton of weather risk. And this is always a problem with industries. There's so many different ways that weather impacts an industry. In the trucking industry specifically, weather impacts trucking because if they run into major traffic on a highway, their delivery dates get delayed. So they don't hit their ETAs. If they, if the truck gets blown over from crazy winds on the highway, that's a Obviously, safety concern. Uh, that That's a problem. Staffing is an issue as well. Based on what we see this week, should we have more drivers or less? So there's all the, I can name another 10 things that impact trucking. However, of those 10 things, what is a trucking company actually willing to pay for? And what are they willing to live with versus I want to go pay X amount of dollars per year to try and solve that problem? It's a very, very difficult challenge to actually try and understand. And these are enterprise sales. So this is a six to 12 month sales process. So if we get it wrong, it's not great because we've mm. burned multiple quarters and we've burned a sales cycle with a really big trucking company that might take us another six months to get back into. So 
What I'm most proud about with our most recent trucking campaign was we ultimately ended on the fact that on all these things that we could do for a trucking company, the thing that's most valuable to them is what's called driver monitoring. So any trucking company, let's say in North America, has uh, 100, 500, 1,000 trucks on the road at once. They're all over the country. They're in Boston, they're in Los Angeles, they're in Seattle, they're in Tallahassee, and they're driving 24 hours a day. Trucking company wants to know at any time who's at risk of encountering weather over the course of the next 10 minutes, 30 minutes, one hour, one, it's an impossible job for a human to solve. So you take all the truck's locations and their routes, you upload them into the software, and then instantly you have a really nice map showing all the different trucks and who's at risk when. And when someone's at risk, you send alerts to the actual driver itself to say, hey, pull over, reroute, whatever. Wow. The way that we landed on that, though, versus, hey, a a campaign specifically about ETAs or specifically about something else was a, a combination of marketing, sales and product all working together in a way that if we hadn't or been operating in more disparate functions, the marketing team would have just done what we think is the, is the most interesting, which might've been something like, hey, let's do a blowover campaign. Because when a truck gets blown over in the middle of the highway, that's a story and there's a lot of eyes on it. And you could see why a marketing team would get attracted to that. Whereas the salesperson's like, all right, but the thing that I'm hearing is monitoring. Mm-hmm. And then what the product mm-hmm. team is hearing is great, Let's go build that, make sure we have the partnerships in place to be able to offer it so we can go to market. So driver monitoring, that's the thing that happened recently, but it was a really nice combination of our product, our sales, and and our marketing teams. So you've been there almost, is it four, you said just over four years now? I'm in my fourth year. Okay, four years. Okay. So and thinking, kind of reflecting on your time as so much, I mean, a lot of velocity, a lot of things have happened, but how does tomorrow in your, from your perspective, like approach competing with those larger kind of more established players, right? IBM, AccuWeather, et cetera. You've, it's been an amazing four years, but how, how have you been able to really, yeah, those are Goliath's gorillas that you're now knocking on their door in big ways. How, how have you been able, how have you been able to do that? The tech, is that it? Yeah, it's a good, great question. I'll answer it on the marketing side first and then kind of more on the on the actual product side as well. Okay. Um, at least on, on the marketing and branding side, as I mentioned, I, nailing our branding and making sure that we're crystal clear about what we are and what we are not has been exceptionally important. And building a company that clearly is growing for the next generation. And so starting with the weather intelligence, but also the name of the company. When I joined, the company was called Climacell. And during the interview process, one of the first things I talked about with the CEO was, are you willing to change the name of the company? Uh, he, asked, he asked me that question. Would that be something that you would want to do? And my response was, I've done it before. I will do it. But it has to be you and I, 100%. This is the new name. No second place. If we don't find the first place name, we don't change the name of the company because it's just not worth it. And so we went through... We did the whole thing in-house, but I'm not kidding you. We looked at 10,000-ish names of companies. Like literally, I was just staring at a computer with like names, available names, scrolling, 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 scrolling. And all of a sudden, like Matrix style, Tomorrow popped up. Wow. And we could see that Tomorrow I.O. was available. And I remember emailing my CEO. And we had gone back and forth with a couple other names before. And like, what do you think of this? What do you think of this? And neither person would necessarily want to say yes or no. But it was clear that it was a second place name. Within 10 seconds, it was move, go get this. We have, this is it. This wow. is it. How much so, is that domain? 
Just curious. No, no, no. It, it was like tens of thousands. It's like tens, like okay. low, like low okay. tens of thousands. It wasn't any. It wasn't anything. Still, yeah. It wasn't anything crazy. It was okay. like I recently heard about someone who spent eight figures on a domain. Um, yeah. Jeez. So yeah, we, uh, yeah. It was it was good. Oddly enough, um, tomorrow.com was very expensive, but we actually really liked the IO, mm-hmm. just given what type of company yep. and brand we're trying to do. So yep. that's the direction that we ultimately went with it. So we've been meticulous about the the brand. Um, on the product side, what we noticed uh, when the reason the company was started was with three co-founders uh, in the Israeli military, some were pilots, helicopter pilots, jet pilots. But what they found was that their biggest risk was unexpected weather. And that's what put them at risk more often than not. And as we looked at weather companies or solutions out here, everything was focused on a weather forecast, which has two inherent problems. One, like here in North America, Almost all the weather forecasts that people get just come from the government. It comes from NOAA. It's publicly available data. And whether it's an enterprise company giving that as a white label or it's a consumer app, everyone's using the same data. Mm. NOAA's data is great and NOAA's awesome, but they're building for you know larger regions. They're building for the country, for major uh, alerts or warnings. They're certainly not, the goal of NOAA is not to build a hyper-local, actionable solution for a trucking company mm-hmm. or for a tech company or for an energy company. Uh, and so ultimately, you're not getting the type of granularity that you want on, on the data. And then two is that getting a weather forecast, even if it's more accurate than what's out there, it's not really helpful if you don't know what it means. So if I tell you tomorrow in Austin, it's going to be uh, 62 degrees and 25 mile an hour winds good luck planning your day, you're kind of going to be like, all right. And then imagine if you're operating a train and you have certain risk thresholds and you need to figure out, well, do I run the trains today? Do I not? Do I delay? Do I not? People tend to err on the side of caution because we don't want disaster to happen. And then it just slows down productivity. You still get yourself in a whole bunch of safety risks, but ultimately we're asking operators to be meteorologists and they're not. And then if companies do have meteorologists, we're asking meteorologists to do the impossible. That trucking example I mentioned, how could you possibly monitor 500 trucks all around the country 24-7 if you don't have an automated system calibrated to your operating thresholds? It's not possible. So what we've done is, first and foremost, around weather intelligence, we've built our own proprietary weather observations. So we look at millions of different input points, uh, everything from public data models to private We also are in the process of sending our own satellite that we've built the last couple of years up into space. That's going to be completely revolutionizing how we interpret and get weather data. And we take all that data and we put it into our own models. And so we run our own proprietary models. We have an amazing team of data scientists and we're one of the only companies that run our own numerical um, weather models actually in, in the cloud. And then we take all of that global and it goes into a predictive software and API. So a lot of companies and a lot of uh, what's happening in industry in the past is you have essentially meteorologists that act as account managers and they try and talk through the forecast. We just give people a dashboard and we say, uh, run the trains on Tuesday from 11 to 3, de-ice the plane on Wednesday at 1. Uh, You're going to see an increase in demand on Wednesday. Like it's all based on how the company operates. Does this change the meteorologist world? Like significantly like if i mean it seems like the information they now have access to is is better and can be better which will change that role a bit it gives anyone in that role access to the most actionable data anywhere in the world which is fantastic and then it allows them to empower their organizations and act at scale 
in ways that I don't think they've been able to do in the past. If I were a meteorologist sitting at my company with access to Tomorrow.io, I would be elated about where my role could go and how mm-hmm. much of an impact I could have at the company. Obviously, with any new technology, we see it now with AI and everything, you have you have people, you have industries that are going to say, like, oh, man, this is going to ruin an industry. This is going to put us, are you, are you coming after us or that kind of thing? It's not even about that. If you just mm-hmm. go back to that trucking example I gave, this is not a job that can be done by humans anymore. There's no physical way a human could monitor 500 trucks 24-7 and yeah. look at their truck and look at their drivers in the face and say, yeah. I got you covered all the right. time. Don't worry about it. Right. No way. You have to use tech. So yeah, if I were a I'd be I would be pretty thrilled about it. I mean, Hillary, the producer, and I were just talking about this before you came on of just how we have this issue. Like she's in New York, I'm in Austin. It's probably in other metros as well, where it's like you you hear the weather, you see the weather report, and it's it's highly inaccurate with what happens that day. It happens all the time in Austin where it's going to rain, 95% chance of rain, no rain and sunny, or it's going to be cold and it's hot, or it just seems so bipolar. I don't even pay attention to it because it's so inaccurate. And I'm wondering, is this going to solve that problem for us? Is, is tomorrow going to solve that? problem because it seems like meteorologists, generally speaking, just don't have access to that real hot, accurate data. So the answer is yes. And let me let me answer it in two ways. Okay. First on the operational side. So imagine you're trying to plan your day and you have weather inaccuracies, but then imagine that you're a company. Um, I'll give another example. We work with the US Open. And so a tennis tournament in New York, their, their main court, they have a retractable roof. They need to make a decision whether or not to close that roof or keep it open for a particular match. They make the wrong decision. They have a whole host of problems that they don't want to deal with. Quite difficult to make that decision if you don't have access to the right data. And more importantly, you can't interpret it at the right time because once a match starts and if you have to pause it, then you have to deal with TV and you have to deal with the fans inside. Then you have added energy costs and all that type of stuff. So having access to the translation of weather data into predictive actual insights is incredibly helpful. The second thing is, will we ever actually solve this problem? So as I mentioned, the space thing, let me expand on that just a little bit more. Right now, the best place to forecast weather data is from space. There is one satellite up there that's about 10 years old, and it sends back data for anywhere in the world once every three days. That's how often it's actually able to refresh its data. So if you ever wonder why they fly a plane into the eye of the storm, it's because they can't wait another three days to see what's going to happen with that storm. So they physically have to fly a plane in and try mm-hmm. and, and measure. What they're using to measure is a radar. What we've spent the last couple of years building is a satellite equipped with radar that the world has never seen before, and it's completely proprietary to us. And once that's up, and we're building a full-blown constellation of about 20 different satellites and microwave sounders, but what it's going to do is it's going to reduce that refresh rate from three days to an hour. And wow. it's going to cover every single point on Earth, including over the oceans, where right now, a lot of people don't realize this. It's kind of scary to hear it for the first time. Your airline doesn't have access to real-time weather data flying over the ocean. It doesn't exist. Wow. And think cargo ships. Think remote parts of the world, South America, Africa, like wherever. There's almost no basic weather forecast that we're even used to here in North America. I was in Kenya a couple of weeks ago working with a bunch of smallholder farmers and just talking to them about when do you plant your crops? And oh, we plant on June 15th because that's the day that we've done it for the last 50 years. Because that's, wow. well, that's how we've done it. Well, as the world changes and climate changes, June 15th now becomes June 30th, but they don't know that. And so if they don't know exactly when to plant and they plant their crops at the wrong time, either it, they won't have enough rain or they'll have too much rain and they could lose their crops. 
they don't have access to an abundance of seeds or anything like that. So if they get their crop wrong, it's a, it's a pretty big deal. Wow. Just giving them access to basic weather functions is, is, is pretty big game changer across most of the world. The last thing I'll say is that radar thing I talked about, roughly 5 billion people everyone on earth live outside of, of, real, of radar coverage mm-hmm. in terms of it actually wow. being actionable for them. So once you've sort of understood the problem, and this is, this is what the company's done such a good job at, is we really said, what is the problem and how do we solve the problem? Not, it's not how do we differentiate from that competitor? Or how do we have a better mm-hmm. like dashboard or software? It's like, what's mm-hmm. the actual problem here? And so our space team has been trying to solve this the last couple of years. And we're in the final stages of it now where the constellation actually starts to go up and that data starts to come down. We're the only company on earth that has access to this data right now. And it's going to be, it's going to be pretty game changing. So that wow. coupled with a, vertical agnostic software platform that translates that data into just predictive recommendations. This is a new era for, for weather and, and climate security. Wow. So you said you were in Kenya recently? Yes. Golly, that's not a, that's not a short flight. It's not a short flight, Dan. Two eight-hour eight flights, and I saw every movie I've been trying to see for the last two years, so it's good. Dang. So there's got to be just some amazing stories and use cases you've heard across industries and categories. You mentioned one in Kenya. I love that. I've been to Africa a couple of times, so I have a special place for that continent. Um, but what else kind of like just, yeah, exciting, interesting use case that have popped up for you the last four years that have just kind of been cool, you know, refreshing, anything that kind of sticks out? There's probably been a lot, but yeah. maybe you could mention one. Yeah, there's a bunch. Um, let's see, the, the Uber one is, is a great one. Okay. Um, so Uber, basically, we work with them to help them predict when they're going to have increases in demand for a, a particular city. So for instance, in Austin, you might see tomorrow morning, we would tell the city manager in Uber, hey, tomorrow from 9 to 11, you're going to see an increase in demand. The reason might be because it's going to be really cold or really hot, or it might be foggy or really windy. It's crazy what types of random weather parameters actually increase the demand or not. But if they know now there's going to be an increase in demand, then tonight or yesterday, they can actually go to all their drivers and say, hey, make sure you're going to be on the platform tomorrow from 9 to 11 so that we don't have um, crazy ETAs, we don't do crazy surge pricing. We can actually meet the market where it's going to be tomorrow. So that's one very cool way that that we work with them. Yeah, love that one. Um, In the airline industry with like JetBlue, they, the de-icing example is really interesting. You might not have it as much in Austin, but here in Boston, it's something that we have quite a bit. So there's specific operating thresholds that allows an airline to de-ice or not. And basically when it's really windy, when winds are above 40 miles an hour, you cannot de-ice a plane. And so if winds are above 40 miles an hour and you have to de-ice, you're just on a standstill and no one can leave the airport. So we'll go to JetBlue or anyone that we work with, United, Delta, and say, hey, Tuesday from one to three, it's going to be winds above 40 miles an hour. So if you need to de-ice, make sure you get as many of your planes de-iced prior to one as possible and either move up your your departure times or at least get stuff de-iced so you can take off. Or you can proactively go to your customers and say, we already know there's going to be a delay. You can choose to to rebook your flight or come tomorrow or something like that to try and avoid that at airport chaos that always happens. So those are two examples that, that that I always love. Just to highlight, I also really like the the rail, the railroad example one, just because the, the safety thing is, is pretty crazy. But what derails a train essentially more times than not is crazy crosswinds. Um, when a train is 
a certain weight going a certain speed in a certain direction at a certain grade and the crosswind hits it out of nowhere, that's what's going to knock it over. So being able to tell someone, hey, that that rail, that trip you're going to be on from Boston, New York, right at this mile marker, you know, at 11, slow down the trains for 20 minutes or speed wow. them up to avoid that pocket. And these pockets of, of crosswinds, especially when you're out sometimes on the West or like Midwest, it's crazy. They just come out of nowhere. Wow. Have you, are you collecting some of the results like you got such cool stories like the impact of jet that for jet blue the impact of that for the railroad because there's there's impact yeah. on the bottom line top line customers experience like yeah just what what sort of stuff do you look for in those of like as part of the case study such cool examples yeah we're we're incredibly fortunate that our partners let us talk about this to be honest um i've worked at companies where just telling customer stories is just harder for, for whatever reason. I understand mm-hmm. it, but we're, we're very blessed to have a wonderful uh, customer base here. So JetBlue, for example, that de-icing example alone, uh, JetBlue saves $50,000 per airport per month just by, just by using that, um, specifically for one use case only on, on, on de-icing. Wow. So everything we're working with for our partners, we're usually looking at savings within the millions or tens of millions on an annual basis. Wow. I also feel like you now know so much about transportation logistics. <laughs> you could you could go deep on air, you know, land, air, sea, because I mean, look, the weather impacts all of it. And then you've got this intelligence supporting all of these really interesting industries, which are supporting millions and millions of people. I feel like you can go deep now in lots of different transportation log- logistics things, man. That's Did you know a lot about those that world before your experience there? No. <laughs> I mean, dude, you're dropping so many interesting bombs within these spaces. I'm like, wow, you, your exposure to these industries is incredible. I know. Re- refrigerated refrigerated cargo <laughs> is the one that really blew my mind. I was like, wait, how does this work? So the you what? plug in the container before to keep it cool. But then when you're going, the temperature starts to come. It's like the weirdest. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> okay. So, Dan, let's talk about trends a little bit. You have a perspective at this intersection of weather and intelligence across a lot of different industries, you've seen a lot in the past four years. What are you seeing now? Take us into the next couple of years. I mean, we're moving real fast as a world, as you know, and your business is moving even faster. Take us in, a, in the future and talk about some of the trends or the nuance there that you're noticing. Yeah, we've been moving to a more automated, more predictive world for a long time now. The AI stuff only only accelerates that. And in the past, you know, I, I typically would have said stuff like it has to be, you know, creativity and having a really good testing cadence and being able to really outthink and outsmart smart. As I move into the next couple of years, for me, the thing that seems the most interesting is like you've, in real world, you've probably heard about people talking about how like, oh, we don't want to you know, own cars anymore because we don't know what's going to happen next. And I feel like with marketing, it's almost similar, whereas like what usually disrupts an industry is when you have a really big company that's like going like a big cruise ship. They go slow and it's hard for them to turn. And so some little speedboat comes in and can maneuver all over the place and just take the market. And I feel like as companies get bigger and we go into new campaigns and everything, being able to leave yourself an out or at least being able to pivot in better ways that you have in the past seems incredibly important to me. Because uh, that's the one thing, as I look back at my four years here and I've made plenty of mistakes, it's always that I did something or I asked the team to do something and didn't leave us with a back door in case that was easy enough for us to get out of as quickly as I would have wanted to. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be so many things like 
we need to be testing and using a whole bunch of new platforms, especially as the AI stuff coming up. Because some of it's going to be really, really good, but most of it's not going to be great or it's not really going to move the needle. Mm -hmm. But so being able to test all that stuff and make sure that you can do the things that work well and scale them, but also not be hurt by the things that don't, like that to me, that's where it's going to get more interesting over the next couple of years. Mm. Let's also touch a little bit on kind of the past couple of years too, going back a little bit now, just talking about marketing or branding challenges or opportunities that you saw around COVID-19, the pandemic. I mean, look, a lot of consumer preferences changed in that time period. What, talk us through kind of your perspective going through that. Yeah, there's there's definitely two things. So we were we were challenged in the same way every other company was by the pandemic, the uh, economy, banking crisis of late. Like, well, of course, we're 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 affected like everyone else. We did two things when COVID hit. I remember we, of course, paused all of our spend. We, you know, froze hiring. We didn't know what to do. Like, oh my gosh, let's figure this out. What we ended up doing was we created our own conference, which is we called ClimateCon. And we did it start to finish in six weeks. And if we had known what was going to go into doing it, we never would have done it. But we mm. created the Weather Intelligence Conference to further our category creation. And we ended up getting speakers from JetBlue and the NFL. And now we have people from the White House and NASA, NHL. Like we have amazing, amazing speakers. And we grew that conference from a couple hundred people in year one to this year, we'll have like 5,000 people at the conference. And that's something that we just stood up and did. And I don't think we would have moved nearly as fast had COVID not happened and it would have forced us to do something else. So that's one thing that I look at as a real positive. Now that we're coming out of COVID, I'd say where we're mostly focused is on in-person stuff. Mm. It's not that it necessarily scales or you can instantly go one to many thousands or millions, but it one forges great relationships especially at the enterprise, but then more importantly, it keeps me updated on what's actually happening on the ground. Because I'm sure like most CMOs, I get most of my updates online, through the product, secondhand. And so making sure I'm actually on the ground on a more consistent basis and hearing from real people, for me, I'm placing a, an emphasis on that moving forward. Mm. And you also look, I mean, the brand is moving incredibly fast and, and growing. I mean, leaps and bounds. I mean, if you Google the brand, I mean, there's so much out there to, to, to hear about. A lot of whispers around when's this company going to IPO? When's this company going to take the next step? Um, how do you approach like developing like a cohesive kind of effective marketing and strategy, but, like balancing creativity with like data-driven things, like keeping it all together? Again, moving really fast. You're your relationship with velocity right now, Dan, is real. Like you've been, growth is part of your DNA and you're not stopping. So yeah, yeah how does that, how do you, how does that, how do you play in that space with the pressures, the, you know, the intensity of that? You're, you know, doing some really amazing things that a lot of CMOs hope to do and, and will we'll cross their fingers, might get there one day. Can you talk about that a little bit from your perspective? I think the most important thing that I have not always done, especially in my first time as a CMO, that I do now is that I have convinced myself that this matters to the CEO, to the co-founders and to the board and our investors. Like marketing matters. Marketing is a C-level role. We are on the inside of the management team. We're in the inner circle. We are in the board meetings and we're talking about what's happening. And it's not this cute marketing thing anymore where we got a press release. We got, you know, we, we did this thing. It's, we are trying to grow revenue from X to Y this year. We're trying to improve our LTV to CAC margins. 
We're trying to take this company from the next uh, funding round to the next stage of growth. And marketing is a huge reason why we're going to do it. And here's how we're going to do it. And I don't see enough CMOs in front of the board enough. I don't see enough CMOs in board meetings. I don't see them on the inner circle of management teams. And it's wrong. If you look at all the, whether it's the layoffs or the revenue issues going on across like tech right now, clearly we need a better strategy. And so much of it can and should live in marketing because as CMOs, we interact with every other department in ways that most, most people don't. And the way that we think more creatively, we just see the world differently. I always get so jealous of the way my designers see the world and I wish I could see the world through their eyes. But to other people that don't work in marketing, that's what we look like because of the way our brains naturally work. And we have so much good perspective to bring into those conversations that we deserve to be taken seriously. We shouldn't apologize for it. We shouldn't be afraid of it. We need to kick down the door uh, just to get in there. So that's how I do it. I really try and stay connected to the board. I really try and stay connected to the CEO at the strategic level. And I make them see, hey, if you're thinking about that decision, have you thought about the story or what if we told it this way or, you know, like that's really we've just had strategic discussions and i try and do it as often as i can on, on a quarterly basis as we go into our board meetings and then you also i mean look look at the scoreboard too right it's like you and the team there i mean I, just look at the score look at the score look what you've already done look what's already happening across all these really interesting industries the impact's already being made at a really big level so i think that's also probably supporting your trust and you know the ability of the board and the stakeholders to believe in you and trust you it's cuz look at the score look what the team is doing it's incredible and everyone's clearly bought in to the vision so i mean i know we're all paying attention to see where this thing goes uh, lastly, Dan, looking ahead, you know, what's next for tomorrow.io? What's next for Dan? Would love to know kind of what your biggest priorities are into the next, you know, year or so. Our big thing right now, so we're kind of in, in the last phases of, uh, of doing a whole bunch of stuff in terms of improving our, our data. Uh, the space launch is going to be extremely excited. We're, we're excited to bring more information about that to, to the world. Um, you know, that's probably where, where our biggest announcement is, is going to come from this, this year. Outside of that, just general sort of company growth. I'm very excited for our ClimateCon conference later this year. For me personally, uh, this is this, this marks my fourth year at the company, which, you know, anytime you sign on with a startup, you kind of, it's like a, it's like a sports contract. It's that four year contract. <laughs> and it's really exciting to kind of get to the end of that contract and think about what, what is the next era at this company look like? And I'm so proud of what we've done here on the marketing side in the last four years. And I've always said, since I joined, there's sort of a pre-space tomorrow IO and there's a post-space tomorrow IO. And as we slowly or quickly start to move to the post-space launch tomorrow IO, I'm really excited how we're going to actually be able to take that to market because we've been talking about it for the last couple of years. Mm, exciting. Well, I love it, Dan. It's been incredible having you on the show. I'm I'm super excited for you, man. And look, congratulations on everything you've done. Look, you've earned everything. And this team you put in place, we didn't get to talk much about the team, but shout out to the team. I know that the folks supporting you, the leaders, I mean, look, the momentum is felt. I mean, we can feel it from the outside looking in of like tomorrow, tomorrow.io is, it's not stopping here. So congratulations, man. Keep going. Let's stay connected. And we're really grateful you could be on the show. Appreciate you. Awesome. Thanks so much. 